This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Hello, this is The Exchange from Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Anna Shemansky coming to you from Brooklyn. Today, we are going to talk about why most of what we think about the US middle class is wrong or at the very least incomplete. And here to discuss this with me is Jim Tankersley, an economics reporter from the New York Times who just published a new book on this subject called The Riches of This Land. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me, Anna. Yeah, happy to, happy to speak with you. We will tell our listeners that this is our second time speaking as we discuss this book on another podcast. But this is going to be better. It's going this to be is, so yeah, much better. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, so one of the things I want to really get into in this, in this show is some of the myths about the U.S. middle class. But before we do that, I want you to first just kind of, you know, Give us a sense of what you're talking about in this book. So my, my book lays out a case, basically an argument about um, what went wrong for the middle class and how we can make it, uh, you know, great again, to borrow a phrase. Um, and it, it does that by retelling sort of the story of where we got a great middle class in the first place. The United States didn't really have what we think of as the modern middle class until uh, really after World War II, not, at least not in the size that we associate with our great middle class. And um, the book argues that that middle class is actually the product of the country breaking down barriers for women, for men of color, for immigrants, and allowing them to use their talents in ways they had been prohibited from uh, because of discrimination. And that in doing so, we created you know, a productivity boom. Uh, a, a better use of the talents of the American workforce, more people in the workforce, and a faster growing, more productive uh, economy where prosperity was, was more widely shared and it pulled millions of people into what we think of as the middle class. So this book retells the story of, the, of that uh, middle class uh, origin in order to point the direction of you know, how we can get one uh, back, you know, a middle class back like we had in the past. Great. And, you know, maybe to start then, we can think about what exactly do we mean when we say the middle class? Because obviously this has many different meanings, the most obvious of which would seem to be statistics. So maybe let's start there. What do we mean when we statistically say the middle class? Um, there are so many ways to slice it. Um, you can, you know, you can do it by polling and just ask people, are you middle class? Uh, most Americans think they're either middle class or working class, depends on the poll, but mm -hmm. as many as 90% of Americans can think that. You, you can go, I, I, what I think is a little more exact, which is to do some income statistics and sort of ask, you know, who is within, say, um, you know, the, the middle two income quartiles or, uh, or, the, or the middle three in income quintiles. Mm -hmm. um, or you can just look at median incomes over time. 
And then, of course, you get into all these fun statistical arguments. And there, there truly is an entire industry in Washington think tanks of people who all they do is argue over the, what the right way is to, to you know, parse out what middle class income is. But you, right. you look at inflation rates and you look at household size and you look at, you know, pre-tax, pre-transfer income versus, you know, post-tax, post-transfer. One of my favorite things uh, statistically about the, the funny ways people uh, argue with it is, there are two camps that um, both argue, you know, like the middle class is doing pretty well over the last 20 years. Mm -hmm. The other one argues they've done terrible. They both cite studies by Saez and Zuckman, but they're different <laughs> studies, you know, <laughs> so because they have done different ways of measuring it. So, right. um, so my preferred way of, of measuring the middle class is actually none of these, although I, I think income um, measurements are useful for longitudinal studies. But my favorite way is uh, a consumption-based, basically a se security stability-based measure of the mm -hmm. middle class, um, which is simply, do you earn enough money and can you build enough wealth to buy a home, have a car or other transportation you need, health care, send your kids to school, have a retirement that is comfortable for yourself and, and a, in a reasonable sense that you are giving your children the ability to uh, have a better life than the one you enjoy. I, I think that's what sort of Americans think of when we think of the middle class. And so that's, you know, how many people can afford that lifestyle, so to speak, is the way mm -hmm. I think about what's the size of the middle class. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you just said there and what you just went through there is really interesting because it suggests why we have a lot of policy debates about, you know, what is the middle class and what we can do about the middle class based on the idea that, you know, some people will think about consumption and, you know, they'll look at the idea of like, well, someone can afford, you know, a lot of things that 50 years ago only the most wealthy could afford or even the most wealthy couldn't afford. So thus, doesn't that mean that the middle class is doing better? Whereas what you're kind of saying is like, well, yeah, it may be great that you have, you know, the internet and you can have great access to entertainment and information. However, if you can't pay for health care, that might not quite uh, make it seem like you are actually in the middle class. Yeah, and, I, and I, I would even take it a step further and say, you know, first off, the economy has sort of made this trade for people. It's delivered cheaper, better products in a variety of ways. And on the other hand, made some basic stability goods like housing and healthcare more expensive and college education is more expensive. And that's a trade-off I think that a lot of people don't actually like. You know, we all love our computers and our, um, you know, being able to get whatever produce we want in the grocery store, which, which my child does not believe me when I say there used to be a time when like <laughs> you'd go to the grocery store and could not get grapes or corn or whatever, like it was not in season and wasn't coming in from all around the world. Um, but, and so, but people, I think, you know, understand that there's that trade-off that we, we've stability for consumer goods. But I think the other thing is, is just that people expect technological progress. I mean, part mm -hmm. of America is you just sort of expect you're going to live better than two generations ago when it comes to medical technology and, you know, even video games. Yeah. Like, I'd be offended <laughs> if my child was not playing better video games than I played still playing kid. Man. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm still playing my original Nintendo. I still own my original Nintendo. But I can objectively see that the quality of the video games he is playing um, is higher than the ones that, that I, but I expect that. I mean, we all expect that. We expect the, the economy to move forward on, on technological fronts, but, but not at the cost of, mm -hmm. of feeling secure. And, um, and I think the sort of anxiety that has come with that progress is a big part of what we talk about when we talk about a, a declining middle class. 
Right. Because I mean, I think when you think about the golden age of the middle class in the US, this post-war period, that was a time when you also had a lot of people who all of a sudden had access to consumer goods and technology that would have been inconceivable to their parents. Yet at the same time, we did have this shared prosperity. And, yeah. you know, in, in the book, one of the things I, that I like that you do is that you don't just focus on statistics. You don't just have tons and tons of charts. And you do have a lot of statistics, but you have a lot of actual people. And I was kind of wondering if this sense that I got in the book about you're being a little skeptical about people who rely too much on statistics is part of the reason you made that choice to include a, a lot of the kind of voices and stories of actual humans. Yeah, I made the choice for a few reasons. One is exactly what you just said. I, I think anybody can tell a story with numbers that they want to uh, make look however they want. But one sort of interesting sort of um, uh, BS test that I have is like, can you actually show me real people who, who, who embody the trend you're pur purporting to show in the numbers? If you can't, I start to worry that maybe you are bending the stats to make it look mm -hmm. uh, uh, unreal. But I, the second reason is um, you learn a lot when you're just out about the nuances of the statistics, when you're out talking to the people who are living them. So it helps me understand the statistics and the research, and there's lots of economic research here um, too. It helps me understand it better when I'm out talking to people who are living the things that have been studied and that are reflected in the stats. And then the third reason is, you know, I'm the son of an elementary school librarian and she um, when I was, I remember very vividly, she went back and got a master's in teaching when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. And she uh, you know, would talk to me about what she's learning about how people learn and retain information. And one thing that really came across to her that really spoke to her experience as a librarian was the power of storytelling to help people understand complex things. Right. And that's maybe the biggest reason why I made this choice. I think people, um, there's, a, there's a real market for books that are just wizardry with stats, mm -hmm. um, but I think people really respond most to, to just stories about people who, who they can see their, their own experiences reflected in. And so I wanted to give people a variety of characters, a variety of stories that could help them sort of experience the economy in a way that, you know, perhaps they can be like, oh yeah, I definitely had that same type of experience where I know someone like Amber Gonzalez or I know someone like Bob Thompson or I, I know someone like Ed or Jordan Green. Um, that I think hopefully will help people connect with the, you know, all the wonky stats that I also load the book up with. Yeah, and from you know what you just said in terms of those people you mentioned, one of the things that struck me and I think will struck will strike most readers is that this isn't just a book about the white male working class, which is what most people mean when they say the working class vote. They mean white men in like Michigan and Ohio. And one of the things that you really seem to focus on the book and one of the myths you really seem to challenge is this idea of what the middle class is in terms of race and gender. It is, um, it is a crazy thing to think about that we're like still having this conversation in America in 2020 and yet really true that just, it is almost a default in, and, and you know, American economic writing, political writing, whatever, that when you say the words working class without a modifier on it, people think you're talking about the white working class. Yeah. But if you, but so you have to say the black working class or the Latino working class or, or you know, Asian American entrepreneurs or whatever, to, to, to convey that you're talking about this other segment of the economy that, that, that is actually the middle class. Mm -hmm. But no, it's, it's, 
it is a, it is a wide diverse group. It's geographically diverse. Um, you know, I, I try in the book to go all over the country. The, the sort of the main white male working class protagonist is from California, from the rocket suburbs of Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. and, and that was a deliberate choice to kind of shake up the, you know, industrial Midwest biases that we all have. And there's, you know, there's a whole chapter from Ohio. So I play to those biases too. But, um, but it, it is, I think, really important that people understand not only that the you know, middle class today um, and the aspiring middle class today, which is so, such an important group of people to talk about, is big and diverse, you know, women and men of all races, but that it also in the past, you know, the progress of the middle class as we think about it came in large part because of these contributions of these non-white male workers some of whom were not experiencing a middle-class lifestyle of their own until very late in the game that we're talking about here because they were held back. They weren't afforded the same sort of middle-class benefits by the government that, that white people were. But the, um, the, the idea that the middle-class is, is simply a province of white men or, or just white people even, uh, not only misses the full scope of the, of the group, but misses the real lessons about how we can make it boom again for white people and non-white people. And I want you to flesh that point out where you're talking about in the past and how part of this productivity boom that we had and this golden age of the middle class that we had was actually partly because of the contributions of the people that we tend to not think of as being part of middle class. So after World War II, um, first off, actually, I think it's important to start in World War II to mm -hmm. think about this. World War II, you know, millions of American men go off to war and there's a huge ramping up of a war effort and millions of women get pulled into the workforce. And that's a really important start of, the, of this story because it is a breakthrough for women who had, and we're largely talking about white women here, black women have been working in the workforce for a really long time. Right. They are historically incredibly hard, you know, working high hours workers. Um, but, but white women started joining the workforce and many of them left the workforce when the war ended, but some of them stayed. And then, the, and then there was a rebound and a bunch of, of white women started coming back. And so just the first part of the story is the entry of women into the workforce generated an incredible amount of economic growth. I mean, mm -hmm. and, and that uh, was very important for the growth that starts building this middle class. Now on top of that comes this allocation of talent story, which is really the heart of the book, which is that until 1960, basically every high-skilled occupation or, or job, in a high-paying job in the country, was more or less walled off to women of all races and men of color. I mean, it just mm -hmm. was, right. they, were, they were white male jobs. And so like 95% of doctors in 1960 are white men. That is not what you, you know, what you would expect from a normal right. <laughs> distribution of talent in an economy. So when women and, and black men uh, in particular start demanding entry to those jobs and, and, and you know, they don't get it right away and they don't get it in, in you know, it's not like the floodgates open, the door cracks open um, and they start marching through. Sandra Day O'Connor, when she graduates Stanford Law School third in her class in, 19, in the early 1950s, is only offered a law firm job as a legal secretary. But within, you know, a few decades, she's the first woman on the Supreme Court. I mean, that's, that's the sort of span that it takes for progress. But that progress is really helpful. That's where the productivity gain comes from. Because it turns out that when you have a really talented group of, of workers who aren't allowed to use those talents, and then suddenly you allow them to, what do you know, the entire economy starts working better. And so that, that generates continued sustained economic growth 
on top of what is already pretty low unemployment, which fuels rapid income growth, which pulls huge amounts of America into the middle class. So these are sort of the conditions that, that, um, that all come together. This, the paper that's kind of at the heart of the book uh, cites you know, the, the better allocation of talent from women and, and black mm-hmm. men for 40% of US per worker growth since 1960, which is you know, the difference between an okay economy and an awesome one. And, um, and we haven't had an awesome one in, in quite a while now. No, and that's interesting because I think when people think about the, you know, that post-war period, you know, one of the things you often will hear is this idea of, well, when essentially the only people who have access to jobs, a large number of jobs, are just going to be white men, and they're going to also be the only ones, for the most part, who are going to be in a number of unions that are going to have access to these jobs, that will push wages up, you would think. And so then the argument becomes, well, you know, that is why we had this kind of higher wage middle class. And thus, that isn't possible when, you know, all of a sudden, the floodgates are open to everyone. And so you've kind of already said this, but like, exactly how would you critique that argument? It's a really important uh, I think point of the book, and it's it's something that people intuitively I I have been hearing since the excerpts started running from a lot of readers who were upset at sort of the idea uh, of what you just said. Gee, did we didn't have as many immigrants in that period? Isn't that exactly what was going on? We restricted the size of the labor force. It is a fallacy. It's a fallacy to think that we have a limited number of jobs in the United States, a limited size of the economic mm-hmm. pie. Um, and I think, you know, the entry of women into the workforce is a huge way to disprove it. I mean, there's also great research on how beneficial immigrants are to the economy. But, right. you know, you're adding 27 million workers over three decades who were not otherwise competing for jobs. And there's essentially no change from it uh, on white male labor force participation. That's a pretty good sign. And white, white male incomes are going up at an entire time. Um, it's, it's this idea that like, hey, the, the economy is not a fixed number. It's not musical chairs. It's mm-hmm. not zero sum. And it's not, and in fact, when you bring more people in doing more valuable things, that creates even more opportunity. You know, immigrants come in and, and they create a, uh, you know, they start a, a place of business that puts people to work. And then those people spend money and it's like a positively reinforcing, right. you know, cycle into the economy. Um, so I think it's really important to disprove that idea that because, you could easily talk yourself into the idea that that a lot of the conditions of the post-war era aren't replicable. You know, union density is not nearly as high now as as it was. Mm -hmm. And and worker bargaining power does matter. It's just, uh, I'm arguing that tight labor markets supply a a lot of worker bargaining power uh, when there's high growth. But, you know, there's not a huge post-war rebuilding effort going on. The rest of the world isn't decimated. Those are things that you would say are not replicable. But but the... But the talent part is mm-hmm. that and that is so that's why I think it's so important to focus on is that, you know, we still have if statistically far too few women working and in, in far, you know, getting paid far too little. There is like a, you know, um, I believe it was Morgan Stanley who put a, a paper out a couple of years ago on like the trillion dollar opportunity of empowering women in the workforce. That's, you know, that's an enormous you know, lost opportunity for the economy. You know, and so, and, and the same is true of, of every worker who uh, wants to uh, be able to get entry to a, a high-skilled job or even to higher education that they can't get the education that they want or a, or a high-quality education yep. and, then, and then can't get the high-skilled job because of, you know, lingering discrimination in institutions. It doesn't have to be a racist boss. It could just be a boss who only hires executives based on people at his club and his club happens to be white guys most of the right. time. 
So I, anyway, I, I, I think that this is the big, the big argument the book makes of trying to disprove this idea that like we can't do it again. We absolutely can. We just have to sort of figure which part is replicable and go with that. Well, and I guess maybe one thing, you know, before, as we get into kind of what can we really do to create this flourishing middle class is to think of what happened? Why did this middle class that we had in the 50s and 60s, and, and I guess you could probably argue at a certain point, maybe in the 90s, but obviously in the 70s, it starts to break down. In the 80s, it does. You have that spurt and then been declining since. So maybe explain a little bit about what you're seeing as what caused that. Well, I think two, two big things happen. First off, the progress that has generated all that, that growth from um, people breaking down barriers stops. I mean, it doesn't stop entirely. It slows for women um, and for black men, it actually uh, reverses. Mm -hmm. You know, things like mass incarceration in the 80s were incredibly detrimental to the black male economic experience, which was not, you know, which right. is just yep. starting to make some progress after civil rights. Um, but I, the second thing is that the, the, the con, you know, the entire state of the economy changes out from under everyone. I mean, jobs really did get outsourced. People didn't imagine that. Right. They, they did, you know, computers really did automate a lot of things. There are entire occupations that don't exist now um, that used to be good middle-class jobs and not just in factories. You know, there are far fewer administrative assistants mm -hmm. and secretaries and, and, you know, those types of, you know, white collar type middle-class jobs have in many ways been replaced by technology. What, but what, so, so in that case, you could just say, well, okay, the economy changed and, and that's, we're just, you know, some people lost out, but, that, but I don't think that that isn't, that's only half the story. It changed, but then the new better jobs didn't appear. When in, in other times in American history and the transition from farm to factory, mm -hmm. better jobs eventually came along for the workers who'd been displaced. We did not do a good enough job as policymakers, A, actually, helping the people who had been harmed by those changes make the transition to better jobs. But much more importantly, we have not empowered the people who I think will create the better jobs. And that's where, you know, that's where sort of the lack of policy to be supportive of high skilled women comes into play. The right. lack of higher education to deliver better outcomes to, to African-Americans, the lack in general of the corporate class to get capital in the hands of female and non-white entrepreneurs, all of those I think are holding back sort of the evolution of and creation of the new good jobs that would create, you know, again, the sort of replacement economy for what's gone away. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a really interesting point and a really good point because when you're looking back at what happened in the past, I mean, yes, it certainly helped in the post-war area that the rest of the world was either bombed out or very poor. So the U.S. had limited competition, but at the same time, part of what you saw was this real investment in the population, it, whether it was increased education, which was huge, whether it was investment in science, whether it was like what you talk about in, in California, you know, putting all of this money into creating the, you know, the kind of the space race rockets. Again, it, it's this idea yeah. of technological investment. And while obviously we have this quote unquote, like big tech economy, it's, it's very, it's very different and we're not. And, and so I guess I'm curious from what, what we can take from that moving forward. I, uh, I, I, I mean, I just think the number one thing we, that, that, that like sort of corporate America can think about and that maybe political leaders who are thinking about fiscal policy can think about is like investing in people. It is a thing that I say over and over in the book. It's a little bit squishy. Um, uh, we don't just need more money for schools. 
we need better schools. We need to figure right. out how to get better schools. We also need to just make, you know, invest in getting people through school. Um, something I don't actually get into in the book, but I've uh, written about a bunch in the past is just how hard it is to make it through even community college as yeah. a low income student, because so much can knock you off the path. Right. And, um, and so investing in, in things like that to sort of help people get their own skills. But then we also need to invest in changing the institution so that people with skills can, can get capital, can, can, I mean, it's, it's not enough to just get people more educated. If it was, if that was true, we wouldn't see the enormous racial and gender gaps in, you know, labor market outcomes by education level, which we, we still really see. Right. Um, so I think, I think that's, that's really, really important. And again, we've seen in the past huge gains for America, like when universal high school was essentially implemented, mm -hmm. you know, in, in an earlier back period. Um, these are the sorts of things we need to be thinking much more about. It goes back to what you're saying in terms of the idea of increasing productivity, because, you know, as you say, it's not just a matter of giving people education, it's making sure that people who have certain skills can actually be using the full extent of those skills. Because I know something you often see with women is you have, women are getting you know, a lot of degrees at higher rates than men, but the issue is that often they are taking jobs that don't actually enable them to meet their full potential for the fairly obvious reason that women have children. And while in theory, those once the child is out of the female's body, it, should, you know, it can be shared with um, both parents, the reality is still that women do the vast majority of the childcare. And so it makes it really hard for women to take the highest level jobs or advance while also having a family. So it kind of goes into that idea of like what you're saying, you need to be able to have policies that enable like to kind of change some of those realities. Yeah, ideally you would have a policy system in place. I mean, and I think starting with a, with a you know, a childcare system um, with both public and private, you know, contributions to it that essentially erases the way the, the the disparities that the labor market has for working mothers you just you would take you would make it so women are have no penalty for leaving um the workforce to you know to have a child and to spend time after the child is born with the child and, and they're able to seamlessly reintegrate uh when they come back and that there's no penalty for women who are of child you know the age when they might have children um, that they might face from employers who aren't necessarily sure they want to hire them or mm -hmm. aren't necessarily sure that they, you know, should get a raise or whatever. And, and that I, I, just starting with that would reduce a lot of the frictions that keep women from getting ahead. But I mean, there's obviously there's more than that. There's more institutionalized sexism that would really help if women did not have to deal with prevalent sexual harassment in our country and our economy. Um, it would really help if women, you know, were not subject to somewhat, you know, it seems like arbitrary, but it's obviously just discriminatory, uh, you know, pay decisions by what tend to be, you know, male managers. I mean, this is, so much of this is path dependence that we just have to change. We just right. could, could snap our fingers and tell everybody, hey, we're doing things different now. And it's, and the way we're doing it different is everybody gets supported and everybody gets an equal shot. It really would make things better. And yet that seems to be an incredibly threatening idea for the people who benefit from the status quo right now. And it's, and, and I think when we think of who it's threatening to, on the one hand, people will think of it as like the, again, the stereotypical white working class, middle class worker in the Rust Belt, who, 
but I would also, you know, you could probably make the argument that it's also potentially challenging to the people who have benefited in the last 20 years. Because, you know, you know what, when you're talking about having a stronger middle class, having more kind of labor having more power and more access to productivity and a larger percentage of GDP, how do you think the kind of corporate class will react to that? Because obviously, because you, you could see that as, oh, well, okay, <laughs> and that means we're, we're potentially going to weigh on profits. Yeah, no, I mean, your, your listeners might not love this, but one of the central ideas of, of you know, my, the, what the book reflects from American history is time and again, throughout the history of the American economy, we see white men in power turning workers of different races or genders against each other in order to maintain sort of a, uh, an ability to have power over their workers. Um, it, 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 the book opens with the story of a factory, a tobacco factory in North Carolina, where some black women say just sit down strike and, and win better benefits for everyone. And then later on, it discusses how the eventual backlash to that was that the factory sort of recruited sort of white farmers basically from from around farther out in the in the rural areas to come in and and you know undercut those workers by you know again playing to a bunch of divisionary tropes and you know i think we see it in our politics today there are a lot of politicians who are really happy to stoke racial animus um or gender stereotypes in order to try to maintain kind of the status quo and the way things are for, for white men. And, and that's, but that's the last and I think craziest part of the story, which um, is a little bit difficult to convey, but I'm, I'm going to try to, uh, which is that it's not even all white men who have really benefited in the last 20 years. You can make a pretty good case that the, the economic outcome premium of whiteness that um, white non-college workers used to enjoy, it's still there, but it is dramatically diminished. Yeah. Um, and in particularly in regards to other, to white college educated mm -hmm. workers. So they, they are not, you know, they do not face the same or anything on par to the discrimination that black workers face, for example. But in many ways, the economy has, has also sort of started, the, the decisions we've made with, with the economy have started to discriminate against those workers' skills also. They are also devalued. Mm -hmm. White working class men are also devalued. It's just, um, they have been told that's because immigrants, China, um, you know, all these other forces. And then there's also, you know, let's not pretend this is only an economic story. They are also feeling the anxieties of watching a world around them change in which they don't feel empowered anymore, where they feel like their culture is threatened, um, where they just, they don't like you know, there's, there, mm -hmm. there, there is racism that runs through those communities, but I would argue that, that um, and, and I certainly don't think that, um, that it, it is any different from the racism that runs throughout, uh, throughout America. And in fact, I can argue that sort of the, the systemic racism of the elite white ruling class is, is the, what is truly damaging here. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a largely white uh, small town in Oregon um, the vast majority of the, the people I went to high school with, working class, didn't go to college. People there mm -hmm. are, you know, I would not describe them as racist at all. I, I don't think that they are in any way. But I also think 
that they have been told time and again that the, you know, the economy basically works the same for everybody and that some people are asking for special treatment and they resent that. And um, that's a story that is like, there's really good money in telling that story yeah. in America right now. And I think that is a huge impediment to progress. That, you know, moves in well to the last thing I wanted to talk about was when we think about how to move forward is how the U.S. middle class and both the kind of rise and fall of the U.S. middle class relates to the rest of the world. Because, you know, another argument people might make is, well, at the same time that the U.S. middle class is having trouble, the global middle class in emerging economies is growing. So yeah. does that mean that this is some zero-sum game? See, I, I don't think so at all. I mean, I actually think it's, I mean, I think arguably, you know, I mean, actually inarguably, inarguably, the great global development of the last half century has been the growth of the global middle class and like mm -hmm. the, the, and the ascension of people from poverty. And again, I actually think this is, is good for America. Mm -hmm. Like you eventually get to a point where um, middle class consumers abroad are buying a lot of American products products, you know, if the rules of, of trade are fair and, and, you know, currencies work out and all that. But um, I, I think that I actually don't think a lot of American people consider themselves in tension with a glow, growing global middle class. Mm -hmm. I just don't think that they appreciate or think that much about sort of those gains. And they certainly wouldn't agree that like, oh, well, I need to give something up so that those people can get ahead. And they don't have to. I really don't think they have to. I think that what's happened is they, you know, there has been this like um, rise of the, rise of the global middle class. There's been a rise of the very very elite incomes mm -hmm. in the United States and in some other developed countries, and there has been a squeeze on the American middle class. And I think that it's the you know the 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 way that the economy has shifted. It is really wrong to say oh it's the the poor people in you know china and cambodia right. who are taking away income from those american workers as opposed to the rich people in america who are just like right next door yeah and and to me it's 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 interesting because you know economies have obviously always been connected to a certain extent but now the level of connection just not just in trade but also in capital flows means that the policies that one country has dramatically impact the policies that another country has and so you know, when you have a number of countries running massive current account surpluses, Germany, much of North Asia that we, you know, we've seen, you know, that, that's not just happening out of nowhere. That's happening because of specific government policies, which often actually keep workers' pay and workers' percentage of GDP fairly low. And again, by design, that enables this kind of export-oriented economy where you can gen you generate all this savings and you generate all this exports. Well, what does that do to the kind of current account deficit countries like the United States? Well, well what is that gonna do? It's gonna put pressure on the workers there. It's gonna make their exports less competitive. And so to me, my question then is, is this just a matter of US policy? Because it seems as though, because these economies are so connected and kind of regardless of what happens between the US and China and you know, trade tensions right now, like that's not gonna go away. We're still gonna have these connections. On the one hand, that makes me think, well, maybe helping kind of the workers and middle class in one country could actually help the workers in another country in, in the U.S., but also that it's a little bit more complicated because it's not just a matter of U.S. policy. Yes. So I agree with all of, I mean, I feel like um, there are 
There's a Sorry, lot. Sorry, it was a very long that. question. <laughs> no, I, I, um, I guess what I'm saying is I, I both agree with you that U.S. policy is really important in, in the eventual U.S. middle class outcome. I also agree that other countries' policies matter as well. Um, I, I do... I do think, though, that like you and I take for a given right now that we're not really going back on globalization. I do not think that that is the state of the political discourse. I think there is this rising idea that like, well, why can't we just make everything here again? As if it's, it's really wrapped up in this idea, I think, going back to something we were talking about earlier, like there is a group of American politicians who have for a long time, and it's shifted across parties and includes members of both parties, but right now it's you know, the president and, and sort of populist conservatives are ascendant but who, are, who really believe, or at least claim to believe, they can restore mm-hmm. a previous version of the economy. Like, as if we had like a, a fail and we're rebooting the, the economy and we're just gonna restore like, a, like three versions ago and that's right. just gonna work better. That's not what I'm arguing for in the book at all. And I think mm-hmm. that's basically, I think that's impossible, but I think it's very seductive because when you tell people, hey, I've got a, a, a prescription to rebuild the middle class, the first thing they ask is, well, where are the jobs gonna come from? Tell me what they look like. People want to know. And so the answer of the populace is, well, they're going to look like what they looked like before. We're just going to get them back. Right. But, you know, a lot of places, the, you know, those jobs that, that went to China maybe have been automated in China yes. or they've moved on to Malaysia or to whatever, like to other. So I certainly think that we can and should do more manufacturing in the United States and create more manufacturing jobs. That's very different from we're going to bring back the old jobs. Right. And in the same way, you know, in the same vein of like, we're, we could have an, an economy where we are less reliant on global supply chains for, you know, goods of national security importance. That, that is not the same thing as we are going back to a system where we're not really interlinked with the rest of the world. Like that is, that ship has sailed, you know, barring like something that takes out the internet for good. And even then, you know, so, so I think, I think it's, it would be helpful if, you know, for us policymakers to, to grapple with reality, but that's not the same thing as saying like we should just accept the new economy as it is. I mean, that's, mm-hmm. that's the other difference here. I mean, I think that those tend to be the two big camps in Washington and they, they are both wrong. I mean, there's no reason to think that the, the current rules of the road have to be the rules of the road. And it's especially like I argue here that the people who are being shut out of the, the economy as it exists now in the United States or globally need to keep being shut out. I think that's probably a, a good place to, a good place to end our discussion. Cause I, I think that, one of the things that was my main takeaway from the book was that this isn't just like a million other books that have been written on the middle class that have had a tendency to say, you know, kind of some version of either the kind of far right version that, oh, you know, this is all about the kind of the the white middle class struggling or the kind of far left version that, oh, this is just the kind of evil billionaire class taking over, but more saying like, look, this is the reality of what has happened we can create a middle class where you know it doesn't involve demonizing anyone it can actually improve by including everyone yeah i i um i am really hopeful that's what people take away from it i recognize that books that um tell one of those simpler stories sell <laughs> um, right. and, and but i but i but i don't think they're the right story and i i also think I mean, to the extent that there's a villain in this book, I try to reflect that the villain is like me or guys like me um, who have benefited from the legacies of, of an economy built by you know, elite white men. But it doesn't mean we actually have 
to be villainous were villainized. We, we can all play a part in this. And so that's why instead of, I mean, I have some wonky tax ideas that I toss in there and some like kind of wacky stuff about how, it, you know, Stanford and Harvard should double their enrollments um, and, and only let in low income uh, non-white uh, students to like boost human, human capital. But the, the big takeaway that I want people to have from the book is if we really want an economy that booms again, we just need to all of us fight hard institutionally, personally, and through policy against sexism and racism. And I know that's really hard to do, but I think that's what makes the book different is this argument that, like that's not just a social justice thing. Right. That is a re that's an economic strategy. And that's what I'm what I'm calling for here. Great. Well, I think that's the perfect place to end. So thanks again for coming on the show. Oh, thanks, Hannah. It was really fun. Thanks for listening to The Exchange. This podcast was produced by Freddie Joyner. Be sure to check out breakingviews.com and subscribe to our various audio products, including The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fix. Thanks again for listening. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.